So Laura and I, uh, we, we have Netflix. We're huge Netflix watchers. We probably watch Netflix 80% of the time. If you don't know what that is, ask your grandchildren maybe or something. But it's just an online streaming service. And a friend of mine, I, I called him. We were talking. I said, all right, tell me your top, your top shows you like to, f- to watch. And he told me about this show called Continuum. So a few weeks ago, Laura and I started watching Continuum. And just to tell you the story about Continuum, it, it was it's set in the year 2077. So I will be 100 years old uh, when that show is set to take place. And of course, in the future, we have flying cars and we have humans that are implanted with technology and you've got sleek buildings and you've got these clo- the clothing that acts like a, a monitor. It's a paper, paperless world and everything's hologram and it's really interesting. Uh, and it, but it's very interesting because... Like a lot of shows, when it's futuristic, it gives you kind of a bleak future. Not, you have all the technology, but the world in 2077 is the giant corporations have bought out big governments around the world, and so the world is now ran by giant corporations. And there's a group of activists that want to get freedom back from these giant corporations, and they do it at all costs, and so they destroy multiple buildings and kill thousands of people, and they're targeting the corporate boards of these companies. And as, as the show, basically, just to give you a quick plot summary, uh, basically, they, the, the group gets arrested, and they're sentenced to death, but there's somebody that snuck in a technology, and when they're supposed to be electrocuted, they're actually sent back to the past, to the year 2012, and a police officer trying to stop it, she gets sent back to 2012, and now she's on their trail, and they're trying to stop the future from happening. So anyways, when you watch shows, I've noticed, of the future, when it comes to Hollywood shows, have you ever noticed that most of them are bleak? A lot of Hollywood shows, the future is bleak. There is a show that came out last year. It was really cool called Ready Player One. It was a Steven Spielberg show. And in the future, it starts in Columbus, Ohio, where everybody lives in a trailer home, and the trailer homes are stacked on top of each other. And so people are living in these silos of trailer mobile homes stacked on each other. And the way they escape their bleak reality is they're all plugged into virtual reality and they just play virtual reality world. And that's how people in the future live because it's so bleak in real reality. Or you may have heard of movies that came out a few years ago, World War Z, World War Z. Uh, Brad Pitt, if you're a Brad Pitt person, um, and in which the world is overran by zombies. Or you may have seen a movie a few years ago, Will Smith, called Legend, in which, again, the world is uh, people, a disease has infected everybody, and people are killing people, and they come out at night, and he's the lone survivor, and he's got the serum, and you can watch the movie. Uh, Another one that's really popular right now on uh, Netflix is called Bird Box. And in that world, an unseen force is in the world, and everybody that sees it, goes insane and commits suicide, and so uh, it's a very gory show, and the only way that you can survive is not to see, so people have to walk around blindfolded uh, to try and figure out their way to get out of this. So when you watch, and again, there's just more and more movies we could talk about, and what I've noticed is when you watch most Hollywood movies, um, the world in the future is just unsettling. It's either a world that's destroyed or it's a world that's bleak or very dour. Occasionally there's some 
a nice future, but it's almost always a very bleak future. And let's, let's face it, you could say this is just fantasy, but maybe the reason that we see this on TV and movies is because we, realize we live in a world in which there's not a whole lot of hope for the future. Uh, we have nuclear weapons. We could destroy the world many times over. And so we live with that reality. We, we live with the reality that hackers can get into our computers and steal our identity and completely wipe out your bank account. And so that's a fear. We live in a world in which violence is rising. I heard it on the news this morning when my phone woke me up that seven people were shot dead, I believe, in Chicago last night. Uh, of course, our child lives there, so that runs through your mind. We live in a world filled with violence. We live in a world that devalues human life. I mean, uh, the latest statistics I found on abortion was that in 2015, 638,169 legal abortions were done in the United States. So we live in a world that is constantly devaluing human life. And mark my words, if things continue eventually when uh, we get older, especially if we go with nationalized health care, uh, people, when they get to a certain age, will no longer be treated because they will be seen as too expensive. So we're living in a world that's devaluing human life. The church, in a lot of places, is in decline. In America, at least, Southern Baptists, 900 Southern Baptist churches close their door every year. A lot of our churches are abandoning their teachings on sex and marriage and biblical teaching on sin. And so... Yeah, we kind of look at the world like, wow, you know, you're like, man, I didn't come to church for that. It's already a downer outside, you know. But, you know, the reality is it's kind of a bleak future, and your future may feel unsettling right now. You may be thinking, hey, is there going to be any money when I retire? Am I going to be able to ever maybe enjoy, not, not that I have to go sit on the beach in Tahiti, but am I going to be able to pay my bills in my retirement? Or maybe as a retired person, you're like, am I going to have, is my retirement going to last? Uh, throughout my life. Or maybe you see your children, your grandchildren making bad decisions. You're like, oh my goodness, you know, and you see them headed for a, a real bleak future, which again kind of affects your future. Or your home may be having problems, or your cars may be having problems, and you're wondering, how am I going to take care of all this stuff? Or maybe your health is deteriorating, and you're feeling the aches and pains, and you realize that the old body is starting to wear out. And, you know, the reality is the future can just be frightening right? The future can be frightening when you think about you personally, when we think about our country, and, and we don't know what's going to happen in the future. We don't know what our health is going to be like. Uh, we don't know if our finances are going to hold out. We don't know what our living arrangements might be. Am I going to be able to stay in this house? Am I going to have to move into assisted living or something like that? We don't know how long we're going to have our family members. I mean, my, like I said, my mom, uh, I guess she probably won't mind. She turns 75 next Friday, and you know, you start thinking about those things. How long am I going to have? My, I've been very blessed. Uh, almost all my relatives uh, are, are still alive into their late 70s and 80s now. But, you know, those thoughts go through my mind. How long am I going to have these family gatherings like we'll have next Sunday afternoon? How long are these things going to last? Uh, you may wonder, is our church going to make it another 10 years? Or things like that. Or, or we, just as a species. I mean, one famous politician now is telling us we got 12 years left. Okay? Uh, we got 12 years left, and then it's all going to be over if we don't fix it now. 
Uh, I'm always reminded that Jimmy Carter in 1977 said that by the year 2000 we'd be out of gasoline. So I always kind of take those predictions with a grain of salt. But still, we have a lot of people running around giving us a bleak future. So how do we face this? How do we deal with this? How, how, how do we deal with these things? Um, do we live in a state of fear all the time? Do we barricade ourselves against the future? How do we deal with the future? How do we deal with the unknown? So if you have your Bibles, we're going to turn to two passages this morning. First one is in 1 Samuel. So uh, we're going to stay in the Old Testament, so that's 1 Samuel. Now, if you hit 2 Samuel, then turn left. All right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, so right after Ruth. So we're going to go to 1 Samuel, and uh, if you can put your finger in there, just keep going to your right till you hit the book of Psalms, and we're going to hit Psalm 57, 1 Samuel, and then Psalm 57. Let me give you some background real quick before we jump into 1 Samuel first. So David is the king of Israel, but he's not on the throne at this point. He was anointed the king of Israel, but he's not on the throne. The person on the throne is a guy named Saul. Saul is the king of Israel. Now, David marries into Saul's family. He actually marries one of Saul's daughters, and so he's a son-in-law to King Saul, and David actually uh, played the harp in Saul's court, which really was soothing to Saul, and David also uh, was on military missions, and he had been very successful as his military missions. You know about the story about David and Goliath, but beyond that, uh, David was very successful in battle, uh, but yet there was this problem. God had anointed David to be the king while Saul was still on the throne, and Saul didn't like that. And so over time, Saul decided, I got to get rid of my son-in-law. How's that kind of father-in-law for you? So Saul decides he doesn't want David around anymore. Well, David had struck up a friendship with Saul's son named Jonathan. And David and Jonathan were best friends. And, you know, David's like, look, John, he probably called him John, I don't know. He probably said, hey, John, look, here's the deal. Your daddy's going to kill me. And Jonathan's like, no, he's not. And David's like, yes, he is. And Jonathan's like, no, he's not. And David's like, okay, I'll tell you what. Your daddy's going to hold a feast, and he's invited me to the feast. I think it's a trap. And Jonathan says, it's not a trap. David says, I'm not going to go. Here's what you, you do. And so him and Jonathan cook up this plan, and David doesn't show up the first night. And Saul notices his place is empty at the table where he's supposed to be. And Jonathan tells him, well, David's gone back to visit his family because they're offering sacrifices. And he gives a story. And then the second night, David uh, isn't there. He's not back. And then, as you know, the story, Jonathan, uh, Saul gets extremely mad. In fact, throws a spear at his own son, Jonathan, tries to kill Jonathan. And Jonathan realizes, my daddy wants to kill David. So he rendezvous with David the next day out in the field and says, yes, you're right, daddy wants to kill you. You got to get out of town. So David takes off and uh, he flees for his life, leaves his wife behind. He leaves everything behind. He takes off because the king is after him. And you know, when you got the king after you, that's bad stuff, right? Because he's got like armies and he's got everything. And so David flees for his life. He runs uh, into this priest, Ahimelech, and uh, you may know the story. He tells the priest, you know, I need some food, and the priest gives him some food there, uh, the showbread, and David eats that, and uh, David realizes he can't stay there because he's putting actually Ahimelech in danger 
by staying there because Ahimelech is a priest. And so David continues fleeing. And that's where our story picks up. So David is on the run, and he knows Saul is after him. Saul definitely wants to kill him. So let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 10. We're just going to pick up the story real quickly, and then we'll see where this plugs into Psalm 57. So it says, David fled that day, that's after when he left Ahimelech, the priest, and went to King Achish of Gath. But... And this was a problem here. But Achish's servant said to him, said to the king, Isn't this David, the king of the land? So see, the people already know that he's been anointed king, even though Saul won't accept it. Didn't they, don't they sing about him during their dances? Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands? So, you know, David's hearing that, whoa, wait a minute, you know. David took this to heart and became very afraid of King Achish. See, here's the deal. David, you know, this is long before Facebook and the Internet and all that stuff. And so David's thinking, you know, if I go to King Achish, he won't know who I am. He'll take me in, and I can, I can just kind of blend in to the people of Gath, and nobody's going to find me, and I'm going to be safe. But he gets there, and how these servants knew, but they knew. I don't know, they maybe heard it on the radio, the song, I don't know, but they didn't have radios. But, you know, that somehow they had heard that people sing about David, and David actually had been anointed king. So David is like, oh my goodness, I'm in real serious trouble here. Now, David doesn't have an army at this point. You know, he doesn't have uh, weapons of the future to somehow way shoot his way out of there. And so David's like, what am I going to do? And what he does next is really ingenious, but it's crazy. Look at what he does next. So David pretended to be insane. He acted like a madman around them, scribbling on the doors of the gates and letting saliva run down his beard. So <laughs> some of you are like, that is just nasty. Well, you got to, you know, look, you're fighting for your life, you'll do stuff, right? So, Because David's afraid, this king is going to capture me. He's going to send me back to Saul, and you know, Saul would probably be very grateful, and Saul would probably do something nice for the king of Gath, maybe give him some sort of concession, and then Gath could go back to his people and say, look, you know, look what I got from the king of Saul for you people, and make Gath, you know, really popular. And so David's like, I am in serious trouble, so I'm just going to act like I'm insane. So he runs over and starts scribbling, you know, rock into the door, and people are like, what is this weirdo doing? And just drooling and just... And so, again, he, he's just trying to figure a way out. And, you know, here's the thing. Fear, when we're afraid, it makes us sometimes do crazy things. So I, I filed my taxes last week, and I haven't called my, my tax person uh, yet, but I got a feeling he filed it on Thursday um, because he said he would have it filed about this time, because on Thursday I got a call. This is the tax fraud division of the IRS wanting to let you know that your account has been flagged. Please call us at yada, yada, yada number. Now, a lot of people will do that. I hung up on them. You know why? Because it's a fraud. The IRS will not call you, by the way. They will send you a letter in the mail. Okay, so if you get a call from anybody saying, and, and we had that happen, I think, a couple years ago, you know, we, uh, a warrant has been put out for your arrest for tax evasion, and uh, they are going to be showing up at your house within the next 30 minutes unless you call us back and make this right. And, uh, you know, and, and that's scary. 
And Laura called me, and I came home. I got the shotgun out and the semi-automatic out, and I'm teasing. Uh, <laughs> but uh, nobody showed up at our house. It was a fraud. It was a scam. Once again, and you can Google this stuff. Whenever you get calls like that, Google it immediately because it's probably a scam and a fraud. Um, and obviously, the IRS is not coming after me because I didn't do that. But apparently, I'm guessing that when he filed electronically some way, they have a way of flagging when things come through. I don't know how they do it. These hackers do it, but they do it. But here's the thing. A lot of people, the reason they do that is a lot of people will fall for it. And a lot of people will be scared to death. Oh my goodness, they flagged me for tax evasion. Like, I've, I always pay my taxes, so I, didn't, I knew it was bogus. But people will get scared because it's the IRS, and they'll call those numbers, and guess what they want? A credit card number. You owe such and such money. If you'll go ahead, we'll pay it now. Then we'll take care of this. And guess what they get? Your credit card number. Your social security number. And then they hack in your bank accounts. Then the reason people do this is because people fall for it because people do crazy things when they're scared. David's scared to death, so he does this crazy thing. And so look at what happens, verse 14. Look, they, they, they see him scribbling on the walls, saliva come down his beard. Look, you can see this man is crazy, Akesh said to his servants. So the king's like, this guy's nuts. Why did you bring him to me? Don't I have, do I have a shortage of crazy people that you brought this one to act crazy around me? Is this, going to, is this one going to come into my house? So David left Gath. It worked. King's like, get out of here, dude. David left Gath and took refuge in the cave of Adullam. So David escaped that. He's on the run again. He has now humiliated himself. I mean, this is the next king of Israel. He's humiliated himself. He's afraid for his life. He's left his wife back there, who was Saul's daughter. He's left behind his family. He's now in a cave. This king, who's properly anointed king, is now in a cave. And that's where he writes Psalm 57. So turn over to Psalm 57 for a second. Because this psalm is written by a man who is on the run and who is afraid. And if there's one point you want to write down this morning, I just try to make this a little memorable, and that is this. When you're afraid, you combat fear by focusing on God. The way, I, the way you and I will combat our fears is we have to focus on God. And look at how David starts off. Remember, he's on the run, okay? He knows Saul is coming after him. He thought he could find refuge at the king. Uh, in Gath there, and he didn't, and he's on the run, he's in a cave, he's by himself, you know, and he's, 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 well, his family actually came to see him, but he's out there, he's by himself, and look at what he writes. Be gracious to me, God. Be gracious to me. I take refuge in you. I will seek refuge in the shadow of your wings until danger passes. Here's the thing. When you and I are afraid, the big question is, what are we going to look to? To a lot of people, when they're afraid about the finances of the future, they look to the stock market. They look to their investments. 
And, and they live their lives on whether my investment's going up or down or up or down. And, and they're constantly, some people when they're afraid, they look to their doctor. You got to help me. You got to give me that right diagnosis. You got to make me whole. When some people are afraid, they look to their weapons. You know, look at all the guns I got and things like that. And they're hoping they'll protect them. When some people are afraid, they look to government. You know, that's what politicians campaign on. They campaign on fear. That's what they do. And, and, and so again, we're going to fix this. We're going to fix it. And then they quote, fix it. Then they turn around and then they, poli they politic against what they fixed. Okay. And that's just how politics works. And people turn to the government. Can you help us? And a lot of people trust in the government to save them, or they trust in their investments, or they trust in their doctors, or their firearms, or science. Science is going to solve it. I I'll look to science whenever they're afraid. Here's the thing. When we're afraid, we choose to put our trust in something. The question is, where are you putting your trust? Is it science? Is it government? Is it guns? Is it where are you putting your trust? If you're afraid right now, and I would imagine all of us, if we were to sit down and be honest, probably there's some fears in our lives. David's afraid. There's nothing wrong with having fear. It's a natural human thing. Where are we putting our trust? David, notice here in verse he chooses to put his trust in God. If you go back to verse 1, I take refuge in you. I will seek refuge. That's twice he uses that word. I'll seek refuge in the shadow of, his, of your wings until the danger passes. Now, how do you know where to put your trust? Well, how do you know what, that you're putting your trust where you say you're putting your trust? Well, the way we know that if a person says, I trust in so-and-so, you can say anything, but we know it by what they do, right? So if you put your trust in weapons, what are you going to do? You're going to be buying more weapons. If you put your trust in science, you're going to be always turning to science for all the answers. If you put your trust in medicine, you're going to be putting your trust always in doing whatever the doctor tells you to do. David is not just saying he puts his trust in God. Notice he chooses to act on it. Look at verse 2. He says, I call to God, the Most High. He, this is his action. I am calling out to you. Okay, I'm not just saying this. I am going to get on my knees in prayer. David takes his fear to God in prayer. About 150 years ago in Ontario, there were two businessmen that were standing on a street corner. And they noticed there was this little man, diminutive man with a saw, like saw saw, walking by. And one of the businessmen turned to the other one. He goes, now there is a happy man who's happy with his lot in life. Man, I wish I could know what makes that guy so happy. Maybe I can get him to come over and cut my supply of wood for the winter. And the other businessman looked at him and he said, look, I know that man. And he won't come over and cut your wood. He cuts wood only for the poor. He cuts wood only for the physically handicapped. He will not cut your wood. Now, that young man's name was Joseph Scriven. Let me tell you about Joseph Scriven. He was the son of a captain of the British Royal Marines. He was born in Ireland in 1819. He received his degree from Trinity College. And after he got his degree from Trinity College, he became a teacher. He fell in love and he planned to marry this young lady and to spend the rest of his life with her. 
the day before their marriage, she died. His fiance died the day before their marriage. He was overgrown, over, overwhelmed with grief because of her, her drowning. And so he's like, I'm not going to stay in Ireland. So he moved from Ireland to Ontario, started his new life in Canada. And he got a home in, in Rice Lake, and he met another young lady, fell in love. Her name was Eliza, uh, Eliza Rice. And uh, so he, he met a second young lady, fell in love, and okay, we're going to do this. Just weeks before they were to get married, she became gravely ill, and she died. Now, both ladies that he had been engaged to right before their wedding had passed away. Joseph Scriven was totally distraught, and so he did what he only knew to do. He turned to the Lord in prayer, immersed himself in the Scriptures, because he didn't know where else to turn. He, just, he turned to God in prayer and Scripture. And, and, and through prayer and just his time, he, he felt that God was calling him to do something totally radical. Now, this isn't everybody's calling, but for Joseph, he felt like God was calling him to do something. So as, 25, as a 25-year-old, he took a vow of poverty, sold everything he had, vowed to give his life solely to helping the handicapped and poor people. And so he started going around cutting wood, helping poor and handicapped people. Ten years passed. His mother fell gravely ill. She lived in Ireland. But because of his vow of poverty, he did not have any money to go see his mother. And again, he was heart sick. He couldn't go take care of his mother. And so he sat down and he began to write the story of his life in a poem. That poem became the song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. So listen to that third stanza we just sang and think about this man's life. Are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? Precious Savior, still our refuge, just like David, you're my refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Do thy friends despise, forsake thee? Take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms he'll take and shield thee. Thou wilt find a solace there. Joseph Scriven did what David did. And he said, I, to God, I'm going to call out to you, to the God who fulfills his purpose for me. And again, Joseph Scriven's life, I'm just going to be honest, wasn't a pleasant one. It wasn't, a, he lost two of the ladies that he lied, that he, that he wanted to marry, and they both died before they got married, and, and here he was living in a life of poverty. Why would God allow this? Why would God allow his, the, the fiancés to die? Why would, why, why would God allow Scriven to live this kind of, why wouldn't God provide the means for his mother so he could go see his mother? And t- I mean, of all the things Joseph's been doing for the last 10 years for God. And I'm sure there were times that, Joseph Scriven had a hard time seeing God's plan. And again, life isn't always easy. And some of you all know that. Some of you all know that. And Joseph Scriven, by the way, never lived to see his hymn popularized. In fact, he drowned several years later. After his death, great evangelist Dwight L. Moody found this song and had it sung in his evangelistic revivals and it became popular all over the world. It's still popular to this day. Scriven never saw that. All he knew is 
he drowned after living a life of poverty, helping people. And I'm sure David had his moments when he questioned God. Why, God, are you allowing this to happen? Why, why am I always on the run? Why are, why are you allowing this to happen? I am the king. What, you anointed me king, God. Why is this happening? And again, let me just remind you this. And I, and I, I was telling somebody the other day, I, I kind of, this went through my mind. Prayer, let me make this, uh, prayer is not about making God do something. Prayer is not about God fixing everything. Prayer is about you and I aligning our will with God. Prayer is us reminding who God is. Prayer is about reminding us of what God has done. See, a lot of people treat prayer as God's some sort of cosmic vending machine. If I pray that, hey, God, I'm struggling financially, give me a job, God's going to say, boop, okay, give you a job. Now, he may, but prayer is not about that. It's about you reminding yourself who he is. God, you know what? I'm struggling right now, but I know that you promised to provide. So I'm going to trust that. That's what prayer is about. God, I I know who you are. You are the king of kings. God, I know that this life is temporary. That's what prayer is about. It's reminding us who God is, what God has done, and aligning our will with God, not trying to make God into a sort of cosmic vending machine. So when you're afraid, combat your fear by focusing on God, because that's what David does. He remembers who God is, what God has done. You are my refuge. You are my strength. And look at verse 3. He reminds himself of what God has done. Verse 3. He reaches down from heaven, that's God, and saves me, challenging the one who tramples me. God sends his faithful love and truth. So David, in his prayer, turning to God in his fear, is reminding himself of what God has done. You have sent your faithful love. You are reaching down from heaven. Now, if you're a Christ follower on this side of of history, we know exactly the realization of that. God sent his love and truth in the name of Jesus Christ. God sent his faithful love to us through Jesus Christ and saved us from our sins. And again, David is kind of looking forward to the future. He doesn't maybe realize it when he says these words, but we see exactly that. Jesus said in John 14, 1, Your heart must not be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. So if you're a Christ follower, there's no reason to live in fear. Here's the thing, your eternity is secured. <clears throat> this is not heaven, right? I say that all the time, but I have to remind myself, this is not heaven. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, this is all temporary. And you know what? Things may look dim. And they look dim for David. Look at what he says in verse 4. Just because you're focusing on God doesn't mean poof, everything's just magically okay. Things can still be dim. David said, I'm in the midst of lions. I lie down with those who devour men. Their teeth are spears and arrows. Their tongues are sharp. David's fully aware that, hey, you know what? Just knowing God, and in our case, knowing Christ as Savior, doesn't mean life's going to be easy. It wasn't easy for David. It wasn't easy for Joseph Scriven, who wrote What a Friend We Have in Jesus. And again, it's so easy to focus on the here and now and the trials that we're going through. And it's so easy to be like the disciples a thousand plus years later when they were in the boat and it's getting blown around by the winds and the waves. And it's so easy to like, help, help, you know, and get so focused on those things. But here's what Jesus said thousands of year, a thousand years later when the disciples were in the boat and they were focused on the winds and the waves. Jesus says, my friends, don't fear those who kill the body. Here's what Jesus said. My friends, don't fear those who kill the body, 
and after that can do nothing more, but I will show you the one to fear. Here's what Jesus says. The person you really need to be afraid of, fear him, that's speaking of God the Father, who has the authority to throw people into hell after death. Yes, I say to you, this is the one to fear. Aren't five sparrows sold for two pennies, yet not one of them is forgotten in God's sight? Indeed, the hairs of your head are counted. Don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. Jesus said, you know, I know there's a lot of things in life to be afraid of, but at the end of the day, the only one to fear is God the Father. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, He's your Father. But we still need to reverence Him. He is still a holy God. So again, how do we do this? We combat our fear by focusing on God. Look at what David says in verse 5. He says, God, be exalted above the heavens. Let your glory fill the whole earth. Again, how will you focus on God uh, and, and stop your fears? Well, here's what I want you to remind yourself. Here's what Paul wrote in Romans 8, 28. We know that in all things, all things work together for the good of those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. Let me give you the caveat. Paul says we know that in all things God works for the good to those who love him. Now Paul doesn't say all things are good because they're not. Child dies, cancer, lose all your money. I'm not saying that's all good. It's not. But what Paul's saying is we know, and we know how, by looking at the past, that God causes, literally the Greek there is God causes all things to work together for the good for the people who love him. Again, doesn't mean all things are good. But you and I can probably look back in our lives and see how God worked for the good. And so David here, as, he, he, as David's going through this time, he's remembering that yes, God will work things out. So you've got to combat your fear with faith. Here's what David says, verse 6, because he remembers this. He says this, My heart, they prepared a step for my net, a net for my steps. I was despondent. They dug a pit ahead of, ahead of me, but they fell into it. See, David's like, okay, I'm scared. I'm surrounded, but here's what I do know. God's going to work through this. God's going to work through this. Look at what he says. He combats his fear by focusing on God. Here's what he says, verse 7. My heart is confident. God, my heart is confident. I will sing. I will sing praises. Wake up, my soul. Wake up, harp and lyre. I will wake up the dawn. I will praise you, Lord, among the peoples. I will praise you among the nations. Here's again a man who's in fear. It's, it, it's not like life's hunky-dory for him. He's living in a cave right now. Life's not easy, but he's choosing not to focus on weapons, not to focus on his heritage, not to focus on his pedigree, not to focus on the fact he was anointed on king. He's choosing to focus on God. I will praise you. I will sing to you. I'm confident because I know that you will work all things for the good. So if you're fear, struggling with fear right now, I'm going to challenge you to combat your fear by focusing on God. And here's what he says in verse 10. For your faithful love is as high as the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches the clouds. God, be exalted above the heavens. Let your glory be over the whole earth. So here's my question. 
What are you afraid of right now? What fears are you struggling with? We all have them. And let me just tell you, because David's focusing on God doesn't mean that magically everything gets okay. It doesn't mean that David walked out of the cave and went to the palace and said, Here I am, Saul, get out. I'm the king. No, David actually stayed on the run. So, I'm not here to tell you that life's just going to suddenly be all yippy-skippy. That's not going to happen until on the other side of eternity. But what I am telling you is that you and I have a choice in the midst of our fear what we're going to choose to do. We can choose to focus on God knowing that He works in all things for His good to those who love Him. Or we can choose to focus on temporary things and somehow put our trust that they will fix it, but they never will. You and I have to have our focus on something beyond this, a God who is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Let me ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Are you focusing on God in the midst of your fear or not? That's a simple question. Where is your focus? Where are your fears right now? What are you afraid of? And then my question is, are you taking it to the Lord in prayer? And when you go to prayer, are you praising God for who He is? Are you praising Him for what He has done? Are you resting in confidence that He will work through this for the good? It may not be easy, but are you going to rest in confidence that God knows and God is in control and God will use this to mold you and make you into a stronger and better person? Or are you going to let your fear eat you up in bitterness? Are you going to let your fear make you into a paranoid person? That's your options. Are you focusing on God in the midst of your fear? Father, I know undoubtedly all of us in this room have some things in our life that that cause fear when we look into the future. And I pray for those of us who may have been misplacing our focus and focusing on hopefully a a miracle cure that will come along medically one day or focusing on whatever the government can do for me or focusing on whatever it is. That we'll stop focusing on those things and focus on you. That this week when those fears hit us, and they undoubtedly will, that we'll stop and focus on you and call out to you and commit to you and trust you and hold on to you. And even as we go through this life, and even as David continued to stay on the run, he always came back to his focus was going to be on you in the midst of it, trusting that you would work through it. And we know, looking back in history, you did. He became king. And you used this time to mold David into a man that led as a great king. And Father, maybe these times you're going through right now, we're going through, you're using to mold us into something greater in the future. 
So Lord, I pray this week, as we go through the week, that we won't focus on our fear, but we'll focus in faith on you in the midst of our fears. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.